Goodness, we're into the book of Acts today, and I don't know of another key book in all the Bible than the book of Acts. I suspect that the truth of the matter is, oh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible this morning, raise your hand. We've got some Bibles back here for you. Yeah, get one back here, and uh, right here, get my little vet one. Well, you are my little vet. You're going to take care of my dogs. She's going to become a veterinarian someday. You're going to take care of Shamham and Japheth. <laughs> but anyway, if you, and you can keep that Bible. It's yours. Take it home with you if you want. And if you got one at home and you just didn't bring yours today or if you got it, that's fine. But uh, if you don't have a Bible, please take one. Everybody else got one? Okay, good enough. We just want you to, you know, have a copy of the Word of God. Well, we're going to start the book of Acts today. And like I said, I think that probably... The book of Acts is, certainly in the New Testament anyhow, the key book that you've got to learn. I would say the key book you have to learn in the Old Testament is Genesis. I don't think you can know your Bible without breaking down these two books. And that's why we have spent so much time uh, coming through the Word of God and book by book, you know, we're in a a program here, kind of like a three-year program to really bring everybody up to speed because of what God is doing in our midst and the ministries that He's given us and the people we've seen saved. And oh, we've just had a tremendous outpouring of God's Spirit. And uh, it's, it's absolutely necessary that, that those of you who really want to be used of God really learn how to use your Bible. That's why on Thursday night we're doing the, the reference material of showing you how at a glance at your fingertips to have your Bible as a ready reference book that when you start working with people that you have the ability to really open up the Scriptures and show them. And I don't know of any other book in the New Testament that you have, and I'm just going to tell you, you have got, not, maybe not today, but in the process of time, you have got to learn the book of Acts. You have got to. If you're ever going to rightly divide the word of truth, you're going to have to understand the book of Acts. There are more people that died and went to hell because of the book of Acts than all the booze and drugs in the world today. And I'm not kidding you. And you say, why is that book such a dangerous book? Let me tell you why. And we're going to lay about a lot of things about the book of Acts today. And I want to give you an overview that when you leave here today, you can really begin to get a grasp for it. At least you'll have a, a process by which you need to know how to study it. And you'll go away with a lot of keys today that maybe you didn't have before. The book of Acts is a dangerous book because as we enter into the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John lay out for us the first coming of Christ. We see, if we've already if we studied it, Christ's earthly ministry. And then we saw Him coming to the nation of Israel. We saw Israel reject, and they crucified. Then he resurrects at the end of the Gospels, and now we suddenly enter into the book of Acts. The reason why the book of Acts is so dangerous, and why it is a book that you as a child of God have to get down, and why there are so many people that die and go to hell because of the book of Acts, and I'm not kidding you, and you'll see it before we're done, is because the book of Acts bridges the Old Testament to the New Testament. The book of Acts is the transitional book in the New Testament that brings you from the Jew <coughs> to the Gentile. You're going to find that we're going to start out with the Apostle Peter running the show and being the main character, and then he fades out, and we see the Apostle Paul uh, taking over, and then he finishes out the book. 
It starts in Jerusalem and then it literally ends to the, to the ends of the earth. And a lot is happening in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the last place. It's the absolutely last place that you want to base your church doctrine on of what you believe about being saved and going to heaven. Because everything is changing in the book of Acts. You can't find God dealing the same way with any one person or group of people anywhere in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not a solid place to build your church doctrine. It is the beginning of the church. It is the church in its infancy. But it also is a time when God is working back and forth with the nation of Israel, bringing this thing through to the body of Christ. And it is a very dangerous place to hang your theological hat on as, this is where I build my church. The safe place that you build your church starts in the next book, Romans, which is the handbook of Christian doctrine for the New Testament church. And we're going to get into that one next week. But a lot is happening in the book of Acts, and many people break their neck in the book of Acts. And, uh, but if you follow the biblical format, and I've given you the biblical format, that it's the Apostle Paul who we're going to see in this book where he comes on the scene. When he takes over for Peter and the transition begins, you find that Paul is the man that is the apostle to the church. He writes all of his books, or a lot of his books, during the last half of the book of Acts. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on, too. Now, here's where we're going to start. This is where we got to start. Let's come to Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, I want you to look at verse 6 and verse 7. And we're going to talk about this. And let's go to the Lord and ask God to give us wisdom today, because there's going to be a lot that's going to be said. And let me just say this. I know that, as always, we've had a lot of people saved here. We've got a lot of people that have come to our church that are visiting today that you haven't been part of the process. Let me just tell you about this. First of all, don't necessarily worry about trying to get everything that I'm talking about today. Just sit back and relax and get the message that, that God has for you in here. God will speak to you today through this message. He's going to speak on different levels. We've got people who have been around for a long time who know their Bibles fairly well. He'll speak to them and show them things on that level. We have a group of people that uh, are on the way of, of learning the Bible and they're well into it. He'll speak to them on that level and give them what they need. Then we have brand new Christians. We have people that maybe uh, are here this morning that, that you don't know for sure where you're at with God. You know what? He'll speak to you on your level. That's what God does. Because He doesn't speak just to you, in, to your intellect. He looks inside your heart this morning and He speaks to you on the basis of that attitude of heart or where you're at with the Lord. So, you know what? I never worry about it. And sometimes people say, well, you know what? I don't know if I'll, I'll understand. You'll, I promise you, you will get exactly what God wants you to have with whatever level you're at today. And that's where you need to know. So, let's go to the Lord today and ask God to bless us as we come to His Word. Father, we thank You and praise You for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. We know your word is true. We know it's power. And we know that, Lord, sitting here today, everybody needs something from you today. Starting with me, working right down the line, Lord, everybody, whatever spiritual level they're at, they need something today. And I pray, Father, that Holy Spirit of God, you will do the work of your office, 
God, on every level, in everyone's heart, that you'll touch them, speak to them, and give them what they need. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you for all you do for us now. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, is the key verse in the book of Acts. The whole book of Acts is built on around this verse right here. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 is the place in your Bible, in the book of Acts, where everything else in the book of Acts is built on this. And here's what it says. When they therefore were come together, the apostles, they asked him, the Lord, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Now, I told you from day one, when we opened up the Bible for the first time, that the theme of the Bible is a kingdom. That the theme of the Bible is a kingdom that God gives to the nation of Israel. In your Bible, you'll find the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. We've defined it many, many times. The kingdom of heaven is the literal, visible kingdom that goes to the nation of Israel. The kingdom of God is the spiritual kingdom that you and I are born into the day you and I get saved. But in Acts chapter 1, you've just seen Christ coming to the nation of Israel. And he laid out the kingdom of heaven and said, Okay, here I am, the promised Messiah. I brought the kingdom. We've also seen the scribes and the Pharisees rejected him, and they wound up crucifying him. And we see now that during this time, when he's hanging on the cross, Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's making a statement for God to forgive the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel does not understand that who they are killing and crucifying is the one that was bringing Israel the kingdom. God honors that request. And if you start to come through the Bible from the New Testament on, and I've said this before, you'll find that the nation of Israel gets three chances to get this kingdom. The first chance was John the Baptist. When he showed up, he showed up preaching the kingdom of heaven. The second one was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When he showed up, he showed up proclaiming to be the Son of God and bringing the kingdom to Israel. And they crucified and rejected him. On the cross of Calvary, Christ asked one more time, God forgive them, Father forgive them, they know not what they do. And God honors that and gives the nation of Israel one more shot at getting that kingdom. That's why in Acts chapter 1, when all the events are taking place, you're going to find from Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 7 a very crucial portion of the Word of God that you have to see. And this is where a lot of people break their neck. And we begin to see here in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 that the apostles are coming to the Lord Jesus and their question is, okay, we know what's happened now. We know what's going on. Let me ask you, Lord, are you going now at this time, are you going to give this kingdom to Israel? That's their question. They're not asking about when does the church start? How are we going to do this? Where are we going to do this? Where do we build the first Baptist church of Jerusalem? They're not asking that. They're saying, okay, with all that's happened, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know what? Look at verse 7. He doesn't answer them. He doesn't give them a clear answer. He simply says to them, verse 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father hath put in his own power. 
He doesn't give them a direct answer because God is now going to give the nation of Israel one more chance. And it is up to them what they're going to do. So God does not, or the Lord does not give them the answer one way or the other. He avoids the question, gives them an answer that simply says, it's not for you to know. One of those things like, well, guys, you're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know that right now. And that's what he does. <clears throat> but that is the key verse. If you don't get that verse, you're going to miss everything else in the book of Acts because nothing else is going to make sense if you don't have one place where you start that defines what's going on here. Now again, I'm going to bring you up to speed. Christ has come, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They reject Him and they crucify Him. On the cross, Luke chapter 23, verse 34, He says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. They've had two chances, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they get through a third. You might know it was three. We've been coming on Thursday night. All right, so the book of Acts is built around that third chance that they get. And God honors His Son prayer. If you would turn over to Acts, you don't have to turn to it. If you come over to Acts chapter 2 and all this stuff is going on, around verse 39, you'll find that Peter says, For the promise is unto you, the promise of the second coming, to Israel, unto you, the Jews in Jerusalem, and to your children, Israel, and to all that are far off, the Jews that have been dispersed since 606 B.C., when the time that the Gentiles start, even as many as the Lord shall call. In Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7, there isn't one Gentile getting saved anywhere. You couldn't find a Gentile in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, walking down the aisle to somebody singing, Just as I am, with a laser beam and a flashlight. It's not in there. You're going to find, and you've got to see this, in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7, he's coming to the nation of Israel. Now, the book of Acts, without a doubt, is the most defining book in the Bible. Now, we have talked about this, and I've showed you on Thursday night how the way to really get your Bible is to get whatever you're studying or whatever the concept is down to the lowest common denominator where it is defined. Now, we looked at a lot of different things, and then you should have that well ingrained in your mind now if you've been laying it out on Thursday night. And we're on our way. And I'm pleased as I could be with the results we're seeing. And I guess that probably the two greatest definitive books in the Bible, in the Old Testament, would be Genesis, and the New Testament is the book of Acts. And you just got to see that. Now, in Proverbs chapter 22, and again in Proverbs chapter 23, you find two great verses which are really keys to your Bible in history. And those two verses talk about the landmarks. One of them says that remove not the ancient landmarks that the fathers have set. That would be for the nation of Israel. The other landmark is in chapter 23 there, and it says uh, in verse 10, that remove not the ancient landmark, lest thou enter into the fields of the fatherless. There's two landmarks down through history that you must follow to stay on track. In the Old Testament, it's the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it's the body of Christ. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you. Studying history is an overwhelming concept. You could actually spend the rest of your life laying out history, and it's just, it will encompass you in everything that you do. Trying to lay out church history and sorting it all out is really a hard task, too. Hey, we're talking about 2,000 years of man's history and what God has done. How many times I'm asked, why are there so many churches? 
Why are there so many different religions? Why do so many people believe so many different things? The answer to that question, or those questions, is found in the study of church history. And what happens is that when you just jump into church history and you just plow into it without using the Bible as the base textbook for church history, you enter in what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 23 are the fields of the fatherless. You become an orphan. You don't know where you come from. You don't know where you're at. And you certainly don't know where you're going. And when you lose sight of, I'm telling you, in the Old Testament, God will never be far from the nation of Israel. You want to find God in history? Find the first landmark, the nation of Israel. You want to find God in the New Testament church? Find the landmark, the body of Christ. You'll never be far from it. And when you get into the book of Acts, you realize that the book of Acts defines everything that we need. That you and I don't get messed up. Acts is your point of departure to trace your heritage and the body of Christ, the church, through your Bible and then through history. And it's the key of all the books in the New Testament to help you do that. It defines everything. In the book of Acts, <clears throat> you find the model church. You find the model ministry. You find the model pastor. <clears throat> you find the model missionary. You find the model evangelist. You find the model Christian. And you begin to find that places, concepts, are now defined for you that as you move down through church history, you've got to watch out for. For instance, take the word council, like the Council of Churches, World Council of Churches, Council of Nicaea. You're going to find in the book of Acts that the Bible tells you and defines for you that councils in the New Testament are always against the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find it every time. And somebody says, why is that? Because the book of Acts is defining when you start your little journey down through church history, you're going to find at least 20 church councils. And he wants you to know right off the bat that when you're studying church history, these church councils will always be against whatever God is doing. They're in the wrong system, so to speak. The book of Acts defines that for you. It's very important to see it. You'll find that the book of Acts defines Peter's role. It also defines Paul's role. In fact, the name of the book we're studying is simply called The Acts of the Apostles. That's what it says. You know what that means? You ever break that name down? Because there's two men who are apostles and it's following the acts that they do. One of them is Peter. One of them is Paul. So the title itself, The Acts of the Apostles, shows you the role played by two men who are absolutely imperative that you see their ministries and understand it as it relates to you. Peter in Matthew chapter 16, you remember that story back there? Jesus gave him the keys to the kingdom. And when he gave him the keys of the kingdom, he said, the kingdom of Israel, you're going to open the, use these keys to open up different opportunities. And of course, that's exactly what Peter does in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7. He uses the keys of the kingdom to open up doors of opportunity for the nation of Israel to get that kingdom. When he fades off, Paul comes on the scene, and Paul gets the gospel that God had kept secret, Romans chapter 16. Sometimes read Romans chapter 16, the last four verses in that chapter, and you'll see how the, the body of Christ was a mystery and a secret that God kept and never revealed from the foundation of the world till He gave it to Paul. But it was always in God's mind, and He always knew what He was doing. So we find all of these things laying out. We find in the book of Acts the true church line, the true biblical line to find for us. 
We also find the uh, line of the true Bible believers defined for us. So when you get down through history, you always know where to start. And if you find where to start and follow those lines, you'll never get messed up because you're following the landmarks. Book of Acts is the foundation of what we call church history. And church history is built on those landmarks. And you get them, you'll stay right on track. If you miss the book of Acts, you're going to wind up being messed up in your theology and certainly messed up in your understanding of where you're at and what you're supposed to be doing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could change the name of the book of Acts and it could be just as appropriately called the tale of three cities. Because in the book of Acts, three cities are defined for you. Three cities are defined for you. And uh, let me tell you something. You have to get these cities down. I told you earlier that the book of Acts is probably responsible for more people dying and going to hell than anything in this world that's bad. Drugs, booze, whatever. And I'll tell you what, the book of Acts will also be the most responsible book for God's people showing up at the judgment seat of Christ and losing every reward they had. Because it's the book of Acts that leaves no stone unturned. You can't approach the book of Acts from an honest, open heart standpoint and not see everything that God wants you to see so that when you enter into church history, it's all there. And it's an incredible study. And you're going to find that in the book of Acts, there's three cities to find. The first city you're going to find is Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt will always be bad. It'll never be good. And he wants you to know, starting in the foundational book of church history, that when you get... 300 years, 400 years, 500 years down the line in church history, and you pick up somebody's book that tells you how great it is in Alexandria and all that they brought to Christianity, somebody doesn't know what they're talking about because the Bible defines Alexandria as a type of the world. You know what Joseph said when he died, before he died? He said, they're down in Egypt. He said, when you guys come out and God brings you out, don't leave my bones in G Egypt. You know what Jacob said? Same thing. When you die, when I die and you guys come out, don't leave my bones in Egypt. Why? Egypt's a type of the world. Always has been. Alexandria, Egypt was founded by Alexander the Great around 332 B.C. Uh, it became the scientific and cultural pagan center of the world. They worshipped the great philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. And they worshipped the ground that those great philosophers walked on. You're going to find that uh, the great Bible heresies begin in Alexandria. You're also going to find the first quote-unquote, Bible college starts in Alexandria. You're going to find men like Philo 20 years before Christ was already corrupting the Old Testament. You're going to find men like Pantanus, men like Clement of Alexandria. And you're going to find men like Adonias Origen, who, when you read books on church history, are held up as great Bible teachers. And the truth of the matter is, uh, those men did more to corrupt the Word of God uh, than anybody on the face of this planet. And it all starts in Alexandria. Then you have the next city is Rome. And, of course, the founding of Rome, the date of that is really unknown. It's such an ancient city. But it grows in time to be a world power. It becomes a dominant world power 100 years before Christ shows up. And it gained control of the Italian peninsula in about 275 B.C. And by 133 A.D., it, uh, it runs the world. And it's an incredible, incredible thing to study. Let me just say this. We're going to come back to Rome in a little bit. But just so you know this, the greatest enemy that Bible Christianity has ever had has been the city of Rome. And we'll talk about that when we get to it a little bit later on. Then you have a breath of fresh air. The third city is Antioch of Syria. And the book of Acts defined Antioch as the model church. Antioch is where their first called Christians 
in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11. You'll find the first biblical Bible teachers in Antioch. You'll find the first missionary trips out of Antioch. You'll find that the standard and the hotbed of New Testament Bible Christianity starts in Antioch. Antioch are training men for the ministry. They're sending men out. And Antioch will always be a represent for you the biblical line. You and I are Baptist. You and I are Baptist. A lot of people don't know what that is today. And very frankly, there's a lot of weird Baptists out there. And, you know, a lot of Baptist churches are taking their name Baptist off because they don't want to be associated with other idiot stick Baptists. And, uh, you know, uh, I'll never take the name Baptist off this church simply because I understand what Baptists are. I don't run to any political league one way or the other. I'm not a member of any fellowship. I don't run with any crowd except the crowd is sitting here because that's what a pastor's job is. But I also understand this. I know where the Baptists come from. And they don't come from Lynchburg, Virginia. They don't come from Greenville, South Carolina. They don't come from Springfield, Missouri. The first Baptist church in America was in 1610 in Providence, Rhode Island, started by a man by the name of John Clark. John Clark was a Waldensian. You know where you trace the Waldensians back to? Antioch, Assyria. That's where they start. So if you're a Baptist, you have a tremendous heritage in spite of the idiot stick Baptists that are around the world today. And I, there, I mean, there's, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't ever pick on anybody's religion more than I do the Baptists because we have our own brand of idiot sticks in, in the denomination of Baptists. So, I mean, uh, you've got them believing everything. But I'm just telling you, I understand where I come from, and I'm proud to be a Bible-believing Baptist, uh, even though uh, there are Baptists today that I wouldn't want to be associated with. And they probably wouldn't want to be associated with me either, but that's fine. It's a two-way street, and we can both drive our both ways. But it's a thing where I understand. I understand what Antioch of Syria does in the book of Acts, and I understand the line that comes from that. And when I come down through history, I can always trace that line because I know the landmark. Learn the landmarks, learn the definitive concepts, and you'll be just fine when it comes to the Bible and studying history and learning the book of Acts, all right? With all that in mind, let's begin walking through this transitional book. And uh, I'm going to break it down for you real easy. And uh, the first thing I want you to understand that there are three divisions in the book of Acts, or three sections. And we're going to break that down first, and then we're going to look at it section by section, because that will really help you understand the book of Acts in a definitive way. And uh, now somebody says, well, what, you know, and, and I'll tell you this, and this is how I do this. You could go out and buy every commentary in the book of Acts or any book of the Bible, and you'll find that guys divide books up different ways. And everybody has their own way of doing it. And I don't argue with anybody. I'm my own man. But I understand this. When I give you a division in the Bible, it isn't because Bob sat down and said, well, that looks like a nice place for a division. I think I'll make one there. Or, you know what? I outlined the book of Acts one time, and this was really a neat outline. No, 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 no. My outline will always be, my rule of thumb for, for divisions in the Bible is when God naturally divides something. Not when I decide to divide it. When God changes doing something one way and goes another direction, that's a division in the Bible. And the book of Acts has three places where God says, okay, done with this, moving here. Three places. And when you understand that, the book of Acts, which looks so complicated, becomes pretty easy to understand. Now, the first division will be Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7. We've already talked about that. And you'll find in those first seven chapters that it's strictly to the Jews. 
and it's dealing with Peter and the kingdom, and he's giving the nation of Israel the last shot at getting what uh, God has for them. And then in Acts chapter 8, we're going to go through it in detail here. I'm going to show you. In Acts chapter 8, it changes, just like that. And from Acts chapter 8 to Acts chapter 20, you're going to see the gospel going from the Jew to the Gentile. Peter's going to fade out. Paul's going to come in. And the gospel moves into the Gentile world, and it all changes. Then the third division will be Acts chapter 21 to Acts chapter 28. And this will, it really, and we're going to see it in a minute, but the book of Acts really ends by Acts chapter 20. Now I know you still got eight chapters left, but those eight chapters, the missionary trips are over. Paul goes to prison, and he spends the last three and a half, three years of his life in prison, and really doesn't effectively minister in the sense that he was. He still does, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But those are the three divisions. Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8 to Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 21 to Acts chapter 28, and we will come through and we'll look at those natural divisions, because that's how we're going to study it, and that's how we're going to lay it out. All right, let's look at section 1. Section 1 will run us from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 7. Let's focus on Acts chapter 1 for a moment. Now, I've already told you that there's no Gentiles here. There's no church here. There's nothing going on like you and I know of today because God is dealing with the question of Israel and what they're going to do about getting the kingdom. So it's a, it's a, a different little scenario coming through here, and this is why it's so dangerous. We've already seen the question of the books without, you know, uh, give us the kingdom of Israel. He doesn't answer them. Uh, you're going to see in verses 9 through 12 where Christ goes back to heaven. And then look at verse 4. Now here's a key. In verse 4, notice that they're all assembled together in Jerusalem, waiting for the promise. That promise is the second coming of Christ to Israel. They're in Jerusalem. That's where they know He's coming. They are assembled together because they know they've got to be together. And they're waiting for the promise. That promise isn't the promise of the church. That promise is the promise of the Christ coming. That's the second coming of Christ. And the rest of the chapter and the next six chapters you're going to find the ministry of Peter using those keys that God gave him in Matthew chapter 16, preaching under the assumption that the kingdom is coming to Israel, and all he's preaching to is the nation of Israel. Now look at Acts 2. Here's where people get screwed up. Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was come, when you don't understand the book of Acts and how it lays out, then you mistake Pentecost for some kind of New Testament experience. Somebody said, have you experienced the experience of Pentecost? Well, let me tell you something. No, I haven't, because Pentecost was an Old Testament feast. There's never a place anywhere in the New Testament church after Acts chapter 1 where anybody's keeping the feast of Pentecost. There isn't any place where anybody's running around in Acts chapter 4, 5, after Acts chapter 7, where anybody's running around talking about the Feast of Pentecost, and have you experienced the experience of Pentecost? Pentecost was an Old Testament feast. We're dealing with an Old Testament Jew here who was looking for the kingdom coming to Israel, and when God chooses to send the Holy Spirit of God to them, it's on the day of Pentecost, because that is the day uh, that they are looking for, and that has to do with the nation of Israel and the Jews, and that's who we're dealing with here. There isn't any place, any place down in history where you find anybody, anybody, anybody in the, third, in the second century, third century, fourth century, fifth century, sixth century, seventh century, eighth century, ninth century, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, anybody making anything to do about Pentecost. 
It doesn't happen until the 20th century, around 1920, 1930s, where it pops up. Now notice down here they speak in tongues in verse 6. Notice how the book of Acts defines tongues for you. Now the Bible takes for granted that we're stupid. And that's a very good assumption on God's place. So He made us and He knows we're dumb. So many times He'll tell you the same thing four or five different ways because if you're like me, you're slow. So He says, and they speak with tongues. And in verse 6 He tells you tongues are a language. If you couldn't get the tongues were a language, He says in verse 8, and every man hears in his own tongue. See? And then if you still couldn't get it because you're thick-headed, He gives you the countries that the languages that they're talking out in verses 9, 10, and 11. You couldn't miss it unless you wanted to. Tongues are not some heavenly language that nobody understands. Wherever you find it in the Word of God, tongues are always a language and it's always associated with another nation. Now when the tongues come down here, you'll find that the reason they come here is because you're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22, and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that tongues are for a sign, and that's the Jew that requires a sign. So tongues were for him. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, long before this day happened, Christ prophesied that with stammering lips and tongues that He would speak to the nation of Israel. This is the fulfillment of that. And lest we all jump on the bandwagon here and get this thing going when we try to get tongues into the church, I want you to just to see it again. Look at verse 5. Now that you want to look at this in chapter 2, verse 5. Dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews out of every nation. Verse 14. Ye men of Judah and all that dwell in Jerusalem, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, verse 36, let the whole house of Israel know. There's no Gentiles here. You've got to see this thing. The first seven chapters is dealing with the nation of Israel and what God is doing with them based on the question they ask. All right, look at chapter 3. We'll see the same thing. Verse 12. Ye men of Israel, verse 15. Ye men of Israel that killed Jesus. He goes, verse 22, he talks about Moses. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, that's to Israel. Verse 17, brethren, Jews. Verse 19 and 20, talks about the second coming, to Jews. Verse 23, Old Testament prophet, there for the Jews. And in verse 25, he winds up talking about the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. It can't get any clearer. There are no Gentiles. There's no church in the sense that you and I know it. In the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, He's dealing with the nation of Israel based on His Son prayer for God, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, and they're getting the third chance that they're going to get. And when you come through all the way through it, you're going to see it. When, when Peter preaches his famous uh, message in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, there are more people who die and go to hell with Acts 2, 38, which simply says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There are... Churches across this world that tell you that's the way you get saved. And those same men that preach that, go down through there and see those verses that says, to the house of Israel, to the Jews, to the whole house, they couldn't find one Gentile anywhere. But because they rejected truth and they can't see the Bible the way it breaks down, they take Acts 2.38 and put it into your world and say, you got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to go to heaven. And they never stop and consider that two chapters later, somebody gets saved that doesn't get saved the same way. And then two chapters after that, somebody else gets saved, and they don't get saved the same way the last guy gets saved. It wasn't the same as the first guy got saved. God isn't doing, it doesn't even out in the books of Acts till you get to Acts chapter 10. 
Because in this transitional time, God is dealing with different aspects. He's dealing with the nation of Israel on different subjects. And God is covering a lot of bases. And if you don't break down the book of Acts and see it for what it is, a fluctual transitional book that God is coming from one to another, changing from the Jew to the Gentile, to the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Israel to the body of Christ, you will break your neck in the book of Acts. Now, I'm not kidding you. So we see Acts chapter 4 and 5, more of the same. Peter's preaching. He's using those keys that God gave him, and he's preached to the nation of Israel. In Acts chapter 6, we see some men are chosen as deacons, seven of them. One of those men is named Stephen. Now, I know we, we, we take our, our deacons and we look at it and we have deacons in our church and all of those things, and that's one of those things that carries through. But you don't find that real jobs laid out for the deacon until you get long time after this when Peter writes it in First and Second Timothy, or Paul writes it in First and Second Timothy. And you call out these men, and one of the key men of these deacons is a man named Stephen. And here it comes. I know you thought I was lying to you, but here it comes. In Acts chapter, uh, in Acts chapter uh, 6, verse 8 and 9, here's what I'm talking about. The Bible talks about Stephen, full of the Holy Ghost, power of God. He gets up and he starts preaching in Acts chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. And where does the opposition come from? It comes from the Libertines and a group from Alexandria, Egypt. Now what do they do? They stir up the people against the preaching and the power of the Word of God. Then we come to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, I don't know how you do it, but you better put a big circle around Acts chapter 7 and put a big star on top of it because Acts chapter 7 is the pivotal chapter in your Bible in the New Testament, certainly in the book of Acts. It all changes at Acts chapter 7. It all changes. And when you get to Acts chapter 7, man, here's what you got. I mean, uh, Stephen, he gets up and he comes up to the pulpit and he's going to preach. Peter's been preaching, now it's Stephen's turn. Stephen comes up and all the assembled nation of Israel and all the leaders are there. He comes in there and he says, good morning brethren, and he starts to let them have it. And from Acts chapter 7, verse 1 through 60, 60 verses, it is his message and brother, he lets them have it. I mean, he preaches the same format that Peter's been preaching, that you guys killed the Messiah and he, what he does, I, he, he goes back in a masterful stroke. He goes back and he lays out the whole history of the nation of Israel from its beginning. He talks about every element of the nation of Israel and how that at every turn, when God did something, they gave God the short end of the stick. He just lays, kind of like us, he just lays it out all through that chapter. And I mean to tell you, he hits them right between the eyes with a two-by-four. He doesn't hold anything back. I mean to tell you, he comes down through there, and then he brings it down to the end. And in verse 52, boy, look what he says. I mean, he's preaching. He's coming to down. He's talking about Moses and Abraham and David and all this and the prophets, and he's letting them have it. And they're sitting down there, boy, and the longer he goes, their, their, their faces are starting to scowl, and they're looking at him, and they're saying, well, who does he to tell us? He ain't ever been to school. You know, and, he just, and he just keeps laying it on. <clears throat> now, he's coming down here at the end of his sermon in 50, verse 52. I can just see him. He's coming down there, and he says, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been betrayers and murderers. Every head bowed, every eye closed. 
play just as I am. How about you scribes and Pharisees come down? No, man. He never got to give the invitation. He didn't even got to take up the offering. He comes down there and he's preaching that thing and laying that thing out, boy. And I mean, they go bananas. They got there and the Bible says that they did get cut to their hearts, verse 54. And that's what the book does, man. That's what it does. And you know what? When that book goes forth and cuts you in your heart, you have one or two reproaches to it. You either come to the place where it breaks you or you do the same thing that the scribes and the fairies do and you hate not only the messenger, but you hate the message. And it goes one or two ways. And in this case, it doesn't work out good for old Stephen. He gets killed. And they take him out there and they stone him. And uh, you know, down there in verse 56, here's a great verse. They take him out there and stone him. And the Bible says down there in verse 56, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, second coming of Christ, and the Son of Man standing. Well, that's an interesting deal. Every place in the New Testament, it tells you that he's sitting on the right hand of God the Father. Here is the only place in the Bible... <clears throat> Only place in the Bible that says after he goes back to heaven, when every other verse in the Bible says he's seated at the right, seated at the right hand of God the Father, here it says he's standing. Now, you know what every preacher in this world teaches and every Bible college in the world teaches? They teach that he, ah, how many times I've heard it. How many times I've heard him come down through that thing and there was that famous preacher Stephen and he, he dies down there. <coughs> Jesus, Jesus was standing up to welcome that martyr home to glory. Amen, brother, praise God. You don't know your Bible. That Bible says that Jesus is no respect for persons. If he had to stand up for Stephen, he'd have to stand up for everybody. You know how many people die a second to go to heaven? Jesus would be. <laughs> See, when you don't know your Bible, you've got to come up with goofy little things like that because you don't know what the Scriptures say. You know why he's standing here, only place in the Bible? Well, the first key was heaven's opened. If you've been coming on Thursday night, that's the second coming of Christ wherever you find it, Revelation chapter 19. Go through the Bible sometime and find the places where it says, and the heavens opened, and look at the context. Every one of them, and I think there's seven of them, every one of them will be a context of the second coming of Christ. Why? Because the whole book of Acts is about, in the first seven chapters, him honoring the prayer of his son on the cross, and here's where Israel gets their last chance, and he is standing because if Israel would have accepted the prayer and the, uh, or the preaching of Stephen, Christ would have come back and brought the kingdom to Israel. And every Old Testament prophecy would have been in there. Now, I know what the average argument is. And you say, well, what about, the only reason you know the whatabouts is because you got the New Testament and you got the rest of the Revelation. They didn't have it then. All they have is an Old Testament and all these Jews are looking for is the coming kingdom, the question they ask in chapter 1, verse 6. God hasn't revealed to anybody yet, Romans chapter 16, the last four verses. He hasn't revealed to anybody yet about the church. Nobody knows anything about the church at all yet. You've got to understand that to figure out the book of Acts. Or you'll be baptizing somebody to get the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that is one of the greatest places in the Bible where you see, and it all changes. And of course, they don't get it. They reject the third time from whence your commonly phrase comes from, third time's a charm. They reject it the third time and then the kingdom gets postponed. Watch what happens. My goodness. You couldn't miss this unless you had a degree in Bible. Look what happens. 
enter the section, second section. From here on in Acts chapter 8, it all changes. It all changes. There's not one miracle done in Jerusalem after this time. The whole thing shifts. The Holy Spirit of God leaves Jerusalem never to come back again and starts on his westward journey to the Gentile. We find Peter fading out and now we find a new name. And we find this new name in Acts chapter 7. Look how God does this. Look how God's got the bases covered. They're down there. God's son on the cross says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. God gives them one more chance. And they're down there, man, and he sends them, Peter and the boys, and Stephen shows up. And it's, I've been asked this before. I've been asked this. Well, Brother Bob, let me ask you a question. How come if Jesus knew they weren't going to do that, why did he bother standing up if Jesus knows everything? And that's a good question. And that brings up a tremendous lesson you got to learn in life. I read back there in Genesis. God put Adam and Eve down in the garden, fellowshiped with them. One day the devil showed up, got Adam and Eve to sin. Eve first, then Adam. And then God had 3 o'clock in the afternoon, had Bible study with them that day. Bible says the Lord God walked down through there, and they must have had a tremendous time together. Suddenly God's waiting down there, and he didn't show up. And what Adam and Eve had done now, in the meantime, is they now know they're sinners, and now that they're sinners... They don't want to have fellowship with God. Same thing happens in a year in my life. You know what? When we don't do what's right. You know what they did? They tried the camouflage approach. They figured if they got fig leaves and sewed them together, they looked like trees that God was so stupid he wouldn't see them. We laugh at them, but we do the same thing. There's some of you sitting here right now think you're camouflaged, you're sin, that God can't see what you're doing. Now, here's a good test for you. The Bible says God's Lord's coming down through there and he says, <clears throat> come out, come out wherever you are. Adam, where art thou? What, God didn't know where Adam was? Adam, could have, God, God would have walked by. Here's this big old tree. Here's Adam with his fig trees all leaves over him going, shh, shh, shh. Oh, here we go. Shh, shh. God walking by saying, uh, hey, Adam, how you doing? Eve, how are you today? Good to see you. I'm going to be over here. We'll be waiting for you whenever you get done fooling around. Why, God would have walked down there like we were bunny hunting sometime. You know, they have that old 12 gauge shotgun kicking the bushes. Ah, Adam, there you go. <laughs> he knew right where he was. You know what? Better learn this lesson. You know why God stood up even though they knew that Israel would reject? You know why he came to Adam and Eve and said, where are you, Adam, when he knew where Adam was? God always knows where you're at. Sometimes God just wants to find out if you know where you're at. You better learn that lesson. Better quit worrying about the thing in Acts 7 and find out where you're at this morning. But God already knows. But that's God, see? That's what He does. God always allows you and I to fess up first before He comes knocking on the door. Well, He comes knocking. He comes knocking. That's why the Bible says keep short accounts with God. It doesn't say that exactly. It said don't let the sun go down on your sin. But Martin Luther said keep short accounts with God. And he had a good point. But it all changes now. Look what happened. He's down there and he's being stoned. God knows they're not going to receive him, but God stands up because that's what God does. He does what's right, honors his promises when even you and I don't. And then you know what he did? 
Bible says down there at the end of that chapter, there was a young man holding the coats of the men that were getting the rocks to kill Stephen. You know what his name was? Enter Saul, who becomes Paul. I don't know how many times when Paul gave his testimony later, he accounted back to that day that he stood there and watched Stephen get killed and saw the look on his face. Now that's another great lesson. We don't have time to get into it. You know what? I got a message I preach on wipeouts in the ministry. So-called wipeout. Stephen's one of them. First message. Never even got to give the invitation. Never even got to collect the offering. And they killed him before he ever got going. Somebody look in the world, look at that and say, what a waste! Uh-uh, boy. God saw that old boy down there, that old Jew standing down there named Saul, boy, watching that man die, and he never forgot it, and he changed his life. It all changes after Acts 7. Never the same again. Watch this. Next chapter, Acts chapter 8, down around uh, <coughs> 5 through 25, <coughs> suddenly a revival breaks out. Where at? Samaria? Half Jew, half Gentile. Uh-oh. We're no longer at Jerusalem. Then in Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 40, <coughs> the first man in the Bible gets saved like you and I get saved. What a study that is. An old black Ethiopian eunuch. And he, you can go through that thing and it's like the TV cameras panning down and, and you see every aspect of New Testament salvation. He's a total Gentile, black man from Ethiopia, which brings up another great study. Why he's the first man in the Bible saved as a black man because when you and I get saved, we're supposed to be a servant of servants, as that Ethiopian was. When we come to Acts chapter 9, you know what you got there, don't you? The conversion of Paul. It's changing. It's changing. Acts chapter 7 was the line drawn on the sand for the first section. Now we start the second section, and we all suddenly we see the revival going down to Samaria. We see an old black African Ethiopian Eudin getting saved as a Gentile, and now the conversion of the greatest apostle to the Gentile church the world has ever seen, the Apostle Paul. A man who writes three quarters of the New Testament and establishes the church doctrine for the body of Christ. Hey, we're on our way. We're making a clean transition here if you're following it. Acts chapter 10. You know what you got? A man by the name of Cornelius gets saved. He's an Italian of the Italian band. Little polka band that played down the nightclubs. Cornelius gets saved. <clears throat> A full-blown Gentile Italian. And know what you got in Acts chapter 10 verses 9 through 17? You got the great vision to Peter. What was that vision about? Oh, it was about Peter went up on the housetop to pray and he had a vision. And what did he saw? He saw a big old, big old blanket come floating down from the sky, kind of like a picnic on the grounds. And on that blanket was all kinds of stuff to eat that he wasn't allowed to eat. Barbecued ribs, snails. I mean, everything that in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 11 says is unclean is down there. And then the Lord looks at Peter and says, Peter, go ahead and eat that stuff, son. Peter, in all his religious fervor, stands up straight and says, No, Lord, I couldn't do that. I've never ate anything that is unclean as far as the Old Testament's concerned. You know what God says? He says, Hey, son, when I cleanse something, don't call it dirty anymore. It's okay to eat those things. Why? Because no Testament's no longer. You can eat, you can go to, you can go to all the barbecue you want now. Doesn't make any difference. You know what the Bible says? Peter was dumb like we are. He saw that vision three times. And the Bible says Peter couldn't get it. He wondered in it. Peter never could get it. Peter wondered in his mind what was going on, and he heard a knock at the front door. I mean, he just came down off the roof. 
And they were thinking, what is, what is going on here? I don't understand. I can't eat that stuff. And I, all my life I was told not to eat it. Now suddenly I see this vision and there's a big old spread out there. And man, I mean, uh, I heard somebody yell, can I help you? <laughs> I walked out on the roof, you know, and I saw the barbecue there. <clears throat> I just tell you, I, I don't know what else to But I can't eat that stuff. And God said, I'll show it to you one time, two times, and three times. Potty said, why did he show me that three times? Somebody's at the door. Why did he show me that three times? I, well, I'm coming, I'm coming. He walks down there, opens the door. You know what you got down there? Three Gentiles. You know why God showed it to him three times? Because he was telling him, Gentiles are clean now, and I got three Gentiles coming to see you, so I'm going to show you this vision three times. So two and two is four, Peter. Oh, you won't beat the book of Acts. It lays itself out. I mean, forget going to worlds of fun. This roller coaster we're on today is much more fun, I think. <clears throat> then we come to Acts chapter 11, <clears throat> the great chapter, where they're first called Christians. Whoa, that's a new twist. At Antioch, the model church. You see, in every Bible college on the face of this planet today, they teach you that the model church is the church at Jerusalem. And that's wrong. The church at Jerusalem never did get it. Church of Jerusalem never could figure it out. Why, wow, here you got the church in Antioch training up men, sending out missionaries. They got the plan of God and they're moving with it. The church of Jerusalem are stuck in a rut. You know what God had to do with them? He had to bring the Titus down in 70 AD to persecute them and scatter them out of Jerusalem so it'd get the picture to get out there. Because they weren't doing it. Oh, there's some lessons there we don't have time to get into. And they, it represents the two kinds of churches. Churches that get stuck in the way they are, and Christians that get stuck in the way they are and cannot change when God changes. And I'll tell you what, you find seven things. I wish I had time to preach on these seven things about this church. You find in chapter 11, verse 20, it's a preaching church. You find in 1121, it's a witnessing church. You find in 13.1, it's a teaching church. You find in 1126, it's a serving church. You find in 1129, it's a giving church. You find in 1129, uh, it's a giving church. You find in 1323, it's a praying church. You find, you find 1129, it's a giving church. You said, you said giving three times. Yeah, I like giving. And lastly, in the seventh one is 13.3, it's a missionary church. It's got everything you need. It's a great model of the New Testament church. And it starts here. This is your roots if you're a Bible believer this morning. You can trace your Bible and what you got and what you believe right back to Antioch if you just follow the landmarks. It's unbelievable. Then when you got chapter 12, wow, the great definitive chapter on showing you that Easter was never part of the Christian Bible-believing mentality. Herod calls it Easter. The Christians call it the unleavened bread. They knew the time it was. They knew the difference. They knew the difference. They never called it Easter. Constantine called it Easter. The Roman Catholic Church called it Easter. Christian Bible believers understood what it was. I'm not, you know what, I'm not fighting Easter. I mean, I'm all for it. I had Easter egg hunts at our house. You know what, I, I'm, I'm just saying. But I know where history comes from. Then you got ch chapter 13, and we start now the first missionary trip. And we, uh, we go from chapter 13 to chapter 14, 28. Never before in the history of the world had men went to the world to carry the gospel. The Old Testament was just the opposite. The Old Testament, and I've told you this before, the Old Testament was built around a fixed temple in Jerusalem and all the world, song, song one, go to that temple. Now it's changed. Now your bodies are the temple and you're to take the temple to the world. It changed. 
It and it changed in Acts chapter 7, if you couldn't miss it. It changed. It changed. And you got to see that. So in section 2, we now find the great chapter on the missionary movement. And we find from chapter 13 to chapter 14, 28, the first missionary trip. And we find in there missionaries and missions defined. We don't have time to get into it all now, but it's all there. Then we chapter 15. Ah, here's where you want to watch. Chapter 15, we have the meeting at Jerusalem. Let me tell you about this meeting. I told you <clears throat> the church at Jerusalem couldn't get it. Here's the church of Antioch doing all these things that God called them to do, going out on missionary trips, going to the Gentiles, and the church at Jerusalem having a problem with it. And they're called a little gathering together here to say, hey, what are you boys doing? This ain't what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be down here waiting for the promise. We're still waiting for the second coming of Christ. And the church at Antioch and the boys say, hey, you, don't, you, gotta, <laughs> you know what, that's not way. You missed some things along the way here. So they have a meeting in Acts chapter 15 down in Jerusalem. And this meeting is also talked about in Galatians chapter 2. Now what had happened is this. The Christians in Jerusalem had gotten messed up and they're trying to, they, they see the New Testament, but they're trying to hang on to the Old Testament. Because they don't clearly see what's going on. So what they do is they try to make the best of both worlds. They try to get you a Christian that's got somebody who follows the Old Testament, but he has the New Testament, and that ain't going to work. So Paul goes down there, and they have a meeting. Now, i got to tell you this, because I don't want this is your definitive book. In every Bible college on the face of this planet, and probably in your Bible, if you have any notes in your Bible, and probably 90% uh, of the of people that you've listened to calls this the first Christian council at Jerusalem. That's a nice little make it up as you go along. I'll give you a five million dollars of anybody that shows me the word council in Acts chapter 15. Somebody says, oh you talk real big Bob, you ain't got that much money. I can get it together for you, find the word. Because it ain't in there. No, no, no. Let me show you how the book of Acts works. You want the word council? First time you find in the book of Acts is council, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and it's bad against Christ. Second time you find it is Acts chapter 4, verse 15, and it's bad against Christ. Second, third time you find it is Acts chapter 5, verse 21, and it's bad against Christ. Next time you find it is Acts chapter 6, verse 12, and it's bad. Four times in the book of Acts, before you ever get here, he told you counsel was bad. That's why God never uses the word counsel, because he don't want to confuse you that all down through history. Every time a bunch of religious Pharisees get together to have a religious council, God and you are going to come out on the short end of the stick. The last one was the council, not the last one, but the one in the middle was the council of Trent in 1500, and it pronounced 176 curses on anybody that believed what you and I believe about the Bible. Happy New Year. So, I mean, the Bible keeps you straight. Then we got Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, 1, 18, 22. We got the second missionary trip. And on the second missionary trip, your Timothy shows up. What a great study he is, the model pastor. Barnabas has already showed up, the model Christian. And you got here in 16.1, we're start talking about Timothy. And you get all kind of insight into him. We talked about him last week a little bit on Mother's Day. And he becomes Paul's partner in ministry after Paul and Barnabas fall out over John Mark. Which you find out in chapter 15, verse 37 and 41. And uh, it's an incredible thing to study that chapter. 
And then you come to, and a lot of stuff in there that you, I mean, I'm just giving you the breakdown here. You'll have to go through a lot of great studies, a lot of great stories. We'll have to come back through it some other time. We don't have time. We've got to get through this today so you get the outline here. Chapter 19 through chapter uh, uh, 21, 19. And you have the third missionary trip, third and final. During this time, this is where Paul writes a lot of his New Testament books. Between Acts chapters 18 and Acts chapter 19 and 20, he writes Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd and and Thessalonians. A little bit later on, when he gets thrown in prison, he writes Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Those are the, called the prison epistles. You'll find some great stuff here in Acts chapter 19. You'll find the great study of the goddess Diana in the image that fell down from Jupiter, Acts 19.35. That's worth looking at. Chapter 20, you'll find one of the greatest places in the Bible where he leaves the church at Ephesus and he says farewell and he preaches his farewell message to the elders of the church at Ephesus. This is a great study. And uh, his message has six points in it and those six points show the leaders of Ephesus how they are to carry on after he's gone. One of the most heart-moving, heartfelt messages anywhere in the Bible, uh, which falls into that thing that I taught you before, always study the last thing a man says. Last thing a man says in the Bible, we always the best thing he says because by that time he's got the perspective on it. So you want to remember that. Then we got chapter 20, verse 36, and this is the key point. This is your last paragraph mark in your Bible. And most people don't even know why the paragraph marks are in the Bible. They think they're just part of English punctuation. Nice try. A lot more to it than that. But this is the last time you find a paragraph mark in your Bible. And it signifies that the end of your Bible has come. Now I know we still got all of Paul's books after this, but they're written during this time. And it's got all the things, you got the book of Revelation and all that, but all that's prophecy. As far as the Bible is concerned, and as far as the time element constraint here is concerned, your New Testament ends right here in chapter 20, verse 36. Because there's no more missionary trips after this. From this point on, and we enter the third section, Paul's in, under, in custody. He's never a free man again. And though God does use him, and you've got some tremendous studies there, for all practical purposes, church history starts uh, in Acts chapter 21. Paul is out of the mainstream, and uh, we're going to look at that in a second, and it, uh, this is where church history proper starts. And you don't need any more paragraph marks in your Bible, divine context, they're divine chapters, headings, and they're divine uh, the text uh, that you know what context you're reading in. And now by the time you get here, you don't need any more. You have at this point everything. If you laid out your Bible and you know your Bible and you studied your Bible, by the time you get to Acts chapter 20, you've got everything you need to follow it on. You're now going to enter into a period of time that runs about 2,000 years called the history of the church where there's not one book written by God that tells you anything to follow, anything to look at, anything to go by. You're now basically, as it looks like, on your own, as it would seem. Not true. God put everything up to this point in His Bible you need to get through the next 2,000 years. The book of Acts has defined everything up to this point you need. And that's why there's no more paragraphs in your Bible after Acts chapter 20, verse 36. That might be a little tough for some of you to grasp at this point, but you'll get it in time. Now we enter the third section. Uh, chapter 21 starts the last division in your Bible, the last section in the book of Acts. And it runs from chapter 21 to chapter 28. And uh, basically the Acts of the Apostles have ended. Because Paul gets a, gets a number of warnings from God not to go down Jerusalem, but he goes down anyhow. And uh, when he does, uh, he ends his ministry, 
by disobeying God, and he winds up in jail for the next three years, and then finally killed by Rome. And this is the great study. And this is one of those great sideline studies, because you have to be hard-pressed to find a better man that loved God than Paul. But Paul teaches us, or God teaches us through the life of Paul, one of the great mistakes that many of us make in dealing with people. You know what Paul's problem was? Paul's a good man. There's probably nobody that had the fire and the zeal and understood his ministry and direction more than Paul did and what God wanted him to do. But Paul's human just like the rest of us. And one of the great lessons that God does is God takes the great men of God in the Bible and not only shows you the great things they do, but they show you the holes in their armor. God lets you see both sides of them. You know why? That's because you don't get so high-minded that you think that you're better than anybody else. You know what? We all got our holes in our armor. You know what? The average pastor today or the average person, Christian today, if, they, if Paul lived in their society, they wouldn't even have him in their pulpit. You know why? He's a jailbird. See? They, and Paul says to Timothy many, many times, he says, you know what? He said, I'm glad you're not ashamed of the fact that I'm in the who's gal. And it's one of those things where God puts men in the Bible like that. God puts people in the Bible, lets you see how strong they are on one side, and lets you see how frail they are on the other side. Because everybody in this room and every Christian on the face of this planet has your best day and your bad day. And sometimes we like to focus on our best day and point other people's bad days out. You know what? That's a dangerous place to go. Dangerous place to go. So when you start to see this, you learn a great lesson. You know what Paul's problem was? Paul's problem is a familiar problem that many of God's people get into. He has such a desire for the Jews. I don't know how many times he said, you know what, if I could go to hell to save my people Israel, I'd do it. He wanted those Jews saved so desperately that he was willing to die and go to hell for them. That's quite an incredible statement. But here's Paul's problem, and it's a problem that many times we all make. And in that making that mistake, we become vulnerable. You know what? Don't ever want something that's right so desperately that you violate the biblical principles to make it happen. But that's exactly what he did. In dealing with people, I tell people that dealing with people in a counseling with me or discipleship all the time, because you get people and you work with them, and you love people, and you want them to make it. And it's disheartening when people quit and don't come back to church. Sure it is. And you feel, obviously, if you're any kind of good person, you feel you've done something wrong. And in most cases, you haven't. You're going to find it in every battle and every war. You take casualties. And this church will take their share of casualties just like anybody else. I'm sorry it happens. I don't want it to happen, but I know that's the way it is. Some of you people a year from now will not be here. You know why? You'll get a better deal. That's all. I'd like to say that, you know, you were preaching on the street corner and somebody shot you between the eyes. I'd be, I could raise a lot of money doing that. But it won't happen that way. It'll be simply you got a better deal than coming here. Or you got yourself in such a bind financially that you couldn't come anymore. Or you had to do this, or you had to take another job, or you had to work Sundays, or you had to work Thursday night. And you know what? Something will take the place of God in your life, and before you know it, you'll be out the door, gone, and it'll hit you just like that. And I'm telling you, people go by the wayside. And what happens is, you and I have to come to the point where I want you to do what's right. I want everybody in this room to do what's right. I would do anything for you to help you do what's right, but you know what I will not do? I, don't, I will not want you to do right more than you do. That's Paul's mistake. He wanted the Jew to get it more than they wanted it. And so he disobeyed God thinking that he would make the difference when God knew that he wouldn't. And when he violated that principle, he lost his ministry and spent the next three years in jail. Not that God didn't use him. 
It just goes to show you that God uses us even when we're failing. And I'm telling you, you better learn that because when you start to work with people and deal with people, the moment you start to cut somebody slack when it comes to what the Bible says, you're vulnerable and they're going to wind up using that against you and you and God are going to come out of the short end of the stick. You're much better to be loving and kind and hold the line. That rhymes. Loving and kind and hold the line. Because if you don't, you'll get shot in the head back here. That'll really hurt. I'm telling you, learn that lesson. That lesson will keep you going when nothing else will. Because in the ministry and dealing with people, you will get blasted. And you might as well just write it up right now. If you're combat and you're in a war, and there's no discharge in that war, and you're a soldier, and we're in a battle, we're going to take casualties. It's stupid. It doesn't have to be, but it is. It would be a lot easier, like I said, if somebody literally got shot. But it's tough when they just get a better deal. Because there's one thing about everyone sitting in this room, and I don't care if you're saved and you're lost. There's one thing about everybody in this room, and I don't care how pious you think you are or how pious I think I am. I'm telling you about something about everybody in this room. Given the chance and the right circumstances, we'll all give God a short stick in the eye. Mark it down and put my name at the top of the list. We're all the same. That's why you have to work at it. That's why you have to understand these great lessons. That's why God lets these men that are great men fail. That's why He shows you their failures. Because he wants you to understand that you're no better than they are. I am no better than they are. And that's why he lets us learn by those mistakes that we might not make the same mistakes. And even when we make the same mistakes, then God shows us that he always wants to take us where we're at. And it's an incredible study. But that's what happens. Chapter 23 through chapter 28 starts the process of Paul going from Jerusalem he goes down to Jerusalem, he goes down there into the temple and he preaches and they go bananas on him. They take him and throw him right in jail, man. I mean, they throw him in the huskow. He never gets out again. And now starts from 22 to 28, the process that transfer him from Jerusalem to Rome. And yes, he's a great witness for Christ. And there's some great things to study in his life about him witnessing before Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. Great studies, great studies, showing you and I how to witness before the world. Chapter 22 through 23, he's brought before the council, bad again. Chapter 24, he's brought before Felix. Chapter 25, he's brought before Festus. Chapter 26, he's brought before King Agrippa. And then chapter 27, he's taken to Rome. After a year of being kicked around in Jerusalem, he's taken down to Rome, and he spends the last two years of his life in Rome, and then finally killed sometime uh, after that. Now that brings up our third city. And I want to show you how the Bible works now. We're almost finished. I want to show you how the Bible works now. I told you earlier that Rome was the greatest, greatest enemy of Bible Christianity. And when you're a Bible believer, you believe the Bible. You take what the Bible says, you learn from it, and you use that. You know, I tell you, I just, for me, it's such an academic thing. It's so black and white. I, I, I have a tough time seeing why people can't see it. When I come through my Bible, I find, you know, as I come through there, I find that, uh, you know, in the early New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Rome persecutes, Rome's in power, she persecutes Israel. It was Rome that killed John the Baptist. It was Rome that tried to kill Christ at his birth. It, Rome that hated the teachings of Christ. 
It was Rome that was in league with the scribes and the Pharisees for the political. It was Rome that had him arrested. It was Rome that had him beat. It was a Roman scourge that ripped his flesh off his back. And when he was crucified, that's a Roman form of crucifixion. It was a Roman soldier that put a spear in his side. It was Roman men that put nails in his hands and his feet. It was Roman soldiers that cast lots for his garment. It was Rome that killed Christians all through the book of Acts. It was Rome that cut off James' head with a sword. It was Rome that beat Paul and put him in prison. It was Rome that killed Paul and 60 million Bible-believing Christians down through church history. Why would anybody on God's planet think that God would ever bring you a Bible from Rome? I don't understand that. When you come down in every turn of it, you realize that in the history of this world, there's been revivals that God has brought in every country, and there's never in the history of the world been a revival in Rome. And when somebody says, well, I got you a brand new Bible. Where does it come from? Well, it comes off from Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, Roman manuscripts. After what I just gave you, why would it take a ton of bricks to fall on your head that Rome was the greatest enemies, killed everybody, butchered everybody, murdered everybody, but God would suddenly pick that country to give you your Bible? I don't understand that. But that's what the book of Acts does. It defines Get me a couple aspirin here when we're done here, honey. I just did some damage here. By the time you get to Acts chapter 28, it's all over. With the death of Paul and the great lessons we do see, God stands by him. God never leave you nor forsake him, even when you don't do what's right. We start now start what the Bible calls, what we call in church history proper. Our beginning to study of all the areas. Two landmarks in your Bible to stay on track through history. Israel in the Old Testament body of Christ in the New Testament. The key what happens in Bible Christianity, the book of Acts, is that. I mean, let me tell you something. Christianity is confused today. God's people who are saved and on their way to heaven are confused today. And I remember as a young man, you know, looking at all this stuff out here, and I remember asking myself the question, what in the world happened to my, my generation? What in the world happened that people are so unbelievably blockheaded about what's going on. Why do God's people not know where they've come from? Why do they not know why they believe what they believe? I found some of the most pious people, Baptist people, who believed all kinds of good stuff. But if you sat down with them and threw an open Bible in front of them and asked them why they believed it, they wouldn't have a clue where to go to show you why they believed it. I am not impressed with that. And I remember as a young man looking at this thing, and I said to myself, and the only terms I knew. What really happened in Acts chapter 28 when Acts shut down and in my world when Sears, Kmart, and Walmart opened up? What happened? What happened between that time and my time that we are so absolutely befuddled and confused about what's going on today? And the answer was church history. Because now at the end of the book of Acts, the next 2,000 years, we find everything laid out right online, running back from Acts chapter 11 where they're first called Christians right up to the time for the next 2,000 years, bringing us right up to where we're at right now. And you know what? Most of God's people today, bless their hearts, most of God's people are floundering in the fields of the fatherless. You're a Baptist this morning, and I give you this time. If you've been saved five years or less, I am not even talking to you. Most of God's people that claim to be Baptist this morning don't even know why they are, and if you tried to pin them down, 
And if you, when you finally got to the rapture of the church, if, if the entrance into heaven was, tell me why you're a Baptist, there'd be a lot of Baptists be turned around and taking the exit out. We get on the Catholics all the time for being such traditionists. Let me tell you something. There are no more traditional people in all the world than Baptists. You know why? Because that kind of tradition stuff feeds our old sin nature. Now, we don't like the fact that, uh, that, you know, it takes study and time. We like to talk about how godly we are. We like to talk about how we're involved in ministry and how we do all of this and all do that. And I meet young men and young ladies all the time, you know, and they talk about, well, you know, I'm saved and I want to do this and I'm going to do that. And they have absolutely no clue. It's like I'm going to serve God without the Bible and I'll show you I can do it. You're going to fall flat on your face. I'm just trying to help you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Book of Acts.